Good afternoon and welcome to Real World Management of Medical Devices, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Assimile. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. Send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box. We'll take them later in the program. Uh, and if we have time, we're going to do a little one-question audience poll. Nice way to view the screen is top center. Click on view options and get it into side-by-side -side mode. And you can adjust the divider to get the slides and the video boxes the size you want them. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Mitch Parker, CISO with Indiana University Health, Murad Dekaidek with Information Security Manager with the University of Illinois Hospital and Health System, and Shankar Somasundaram, founder and CEO with Assimile. So lots to talk about, very important topic, and I know people are looking for some good advice and information on this. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, Mitch, let's start off with you. Can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? So morning. Thank you for having me, Anthony. So my organization right now has 17 hospitals, about 35,000 team members, and we care for patients all over the state of Indiana. And because of that, we have a very large scope, especially given the large amount of outpatient sites that my organization has, and also our telemedicine and children's hospital presence. Excellent. Thank you, Mitch. Murad? Yes, Murad Dekaidek. I manage the security team at University of Illinois Health. Uh, we have a hospital of about 460 beds, and we have 26 clinics throughout the Chicagoland area. And um, we have about 3,500 uh, hospital employees. Very good. Shankar? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining today. So I'm Shankar. I'm the CEO and founder of Assembly. For those who don't know Assembly, Assembly is a healthcare-focused medical and connected device solution for inventory cybersecurity operational management. And we are keep working with health systems of different sizes across the country. Thank you. All right. Very good. First question, Murad, let's start with you. What makes medical devices vulnerable to cyber attacks and why is it challenging to secure them? Yes, uh, medical devices um, nowadays lack a lot of cybersecurity. Um, cybersecurity is still a new to medical devices, and actually, the long for the longest time, the FDA and manufacturers' focus has been on the safety of devices, not on the cybersecurity of devices. And uh, to prove this to you, the first ever recall related to a security flaw in a medical device was issued in 2015 by the FDA. Uh, and it was um, regarding the vulnerability that the Hespera infusion pump had. The other thing is that the FDA first developed their cybersecurity standards for medical devices in 2014. So the main idea, the main takeaway here is that cybersecurity in uh, the medical field and especially for medical devices has been recent. It hasn't been um, the focus for many years. Another thing is that medical devices run um, legacy applications and legacy hardware and legacy platform. 
for the longest time, there has no been, been any security maintenance to keep up with these uh, devices security. Uh, the manufacturers for the longest time manufactured these devices and released them into use without monitoring the security of these devices. Um, what also makes it, it challenging is that these devices contain many different components that the manufacturer has no complete control over. Uh, for example, medical devices use uh, third-party applications. They use off-the-shelf software that is not um, proved to be uh, safe for the use of medical devices. Um, also, there's a lot of components that um, make up the medical device, but there's no ownership to who we need to go to in order uh, to secure these medical devices and uh, take care of any vulnerability affecting those um, medical devices. Um, I come across devices that connect to the network, especially legacy devices. They use serial to ethernet converter to connect to the medical uh, device network. This tells me that these devices were never designed to be connected to a network. They don't understand secure network communication. They have no built-in mechanism to handle any threats that the network can present. And instead of replacing these with medical devices that were designed with security in mind from day one, the manufacturers just added a serial to Ethernet converter and connected them to the network. Um, to prove this to you, I've seen many of them use broadcast communication. Broadcast communication is bad for... Uh, security because it provides no uh, privacy. I've seen medical devices accept communication from any device on the network, regardless if that's malicious communication or not. Medical devices need to communicate properly, securely on the network and communicate only with devices that they need to communicate with and ignore all the rest of the communication that comes from devices that they do not need to communicate with. Um, I wanna touch on one more thing that um, makes it difficult also to secure medical devices. For the longest time, manufacturers did not even know which secure cybersecurity standard to, ad to adopt. There are the NIST and the ISOs. Uh, there are too many of them out there, but none of them is device-specific. None of them provides any guidance on what is needed to implement security controls. So manufacturers were left in the dark trying to figure things on their own on how to implement uh, cybersecurity in their medical devices. And especially the last thing I want to close with is that manufacturers, especially the small ones, they lack cybersecurity experts on their teams. They usually uh, reach out to consultants for the help they need with cybersecurity. All right. Very good. Well, there's a lot, lot there to discuss. Uh, Shankar, your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, like Murad pointed out, right, some of the things Murad pointed out are great points. Uh, legacy is definitely an issue. You know, an average life of an operating system is what, seven to 10 years, maybe, depending on the, you know, operating system vendor, whereas a medical device stays in the field for easily 10 to 15 years, uh, sometimes even 20, depending on the high-end device. And so by default, a lot of medical devices are vulnerable by that very definition, right? The other problem is patches. When you have an IT workstation or server, you can just go patch all of them. Uh, now, as per FDA, you can patch medical devices, 
But there is a risk that if you patch a device and it causes an operational harm, then who's liable? So that really stops you from patching these devices in a way that you can patch your IT workstation servers. And there were 20,000 vulnerabilities that were published last year alone, uh, just in 2020. So the challenge then becomes is that your medical devices are vulnerable, they're legacy, you can't really patch them the way you patch IT devices. They don't have the same level of security control. For, I mean, you can point the finger at the manufacturer, you can say this is how it's been, uh, the frameworks have not been there, but for whatever reason, the, the security controls aren't there on the device. And then if you are a health system, you, you are facing the same problems. You have legacy, you can't just go patch it the way you want. You can't just put an antivirus agent. If you go read the manufacturer disclosure document for many of these, it will say that you are not allowed to install an anti-malware. You're not allowed to do this without invalidating the warranty. So that puts a real challenge for the health system as well. So you're forced to look at other ways to secure them. Uh, which does make it uh, pretty challenging to secure these devices. Very good, Mitch. So what I can really say about this is that the many of the medical device vendors that I've worked with have had to adapt incredibly quickly. And Murad, to your point, yes, a lot of these devices did start off with serial communication and no, they did not evolve to secure communications. However, they are catching up very rapidly. I've done a lot of work with underwriters laboratories, IEEE and various other industry groups on this. And they have been very rapidly advancing because yes, we have a significant amount of legacy devices out there. We have a pretty serious software supply chain issue with getting drivers for a lot of hardware components because a lot of medical devices, a lot of IOT devices use bespoke hardware components, and it's very hard to get reliable device drivers, for example, say for something that interfaces with a refrigerator. And if you can't get good device drivers, you're not updating your kernel, which means Linux kernel, you get about a good seven years out of a Linux kernel with patches and support if you get a good long-term one. So you have a concern there. Also with Windows, you have about a 10-year life cycle for that. And a lot of advancement has been made in the past couple of years. However, it is going to take five to 10 years for those advancements to percolate to the rest of the industry. So right now we're in a situation where significant improvements such as the 2019 revision of the MDS2 form have been made. However, we have to wait for devices to use those. Also, we have the UL 2900-1 secure cybersecure development for IoT and devices. Companies have just started adapting that. So it takes a long time for companies, both large and small, to spin up the operational cycles they need to provide the level of support. And for the next five to 10 years, it's not gonna be easy to continue to support the legacy devices that we have. While a lot of newer devices that meet newer security standards start rolling out to the enterprise. So we have that dichotomy of having to protect what we have on our network, which I agree. Again, we started developing these devices when they were direct connect serial ports and you didn't really worry about security because it was a serial port. And now you have to worry about 5G. So a lot of work is being done and I have to hand it to the medical device vendors for all the work that they have done and their collaboration specifically with the FDA and through various industry groups 
However, it's going to take time and we still have to protect against those emergent risks while the new systems come into play. So that's interesting, Mitch. So the next five to 10 years, you see a sort of a unique time of, um, you know, difficulty because the devices that are out there now were not built with the proper security, but we can't throw them out because we paid too much money for them. The new devices being made will have proper security. So we're, we're in this window where folks like yourself are going to have to grapple with that. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. So again, over the past couple of years, and again, I've had these discussions with many large companies over their security practices. And I have to say, I don't want, they've done incredible amounts of work and they've done a lot to help improve the community. However, it's going to take a while. And it's, a lot of it is, we have these product life cycles out there. We have these product lines. And yes, they have 10 to 15 year life cycles for these product lines. For example, some of the products that Pillows puts out, 10 to 15 years. And, and it's not just the products themselves. When you put a new product in place in a hospital, you have to think about how it's going to be used, train the people, and making sure they know how to use it. Because the worst thing to do and putting a new device into place is changing how it operates because you have to understand you change how something operates on a doctor or a nurse, that is a significant issue that could potentially do a patient safety issue. So you have to be very careful about how you do everything. And it takes a long time to put something out there carefully and deliberately in a way that aligns with a culture based on risk management like we have in healthcare. All right. Very good. Uh, next question, Shankar, we're going to start with you. What are some of the compensating security controls that can be implemented to secure medical devices? Yeah, thank you. So this is a question that gets asked often, right? So there are many ways to do it. Um, you know, some of the standard ways of looking at it um, is really you put, uh, you know, segmentation policies, you put firewalls in for the devices. Uh, you make sure there's some level of access controls for who accesses the device uh, in your network. Physical controls are very important because people talk about cyber controls. They totally forget about the physical controls to make sure the right people are getting access to the device. But one of the other things we also, uh, we also recommend is see, there are like uh, thousands of vulnerabilities getting published every year. The reality is you can segment and micro-segment your network and this is something that, you know, from the assembly solution you can do as well. But the thing is, there is, when you do this kind of work, you can actually create a, a, your maintenance nightmare in some cases where you're just segmenting, resegmenting, oversegmenting, and then you do the segmentation and then it becomes an impossible thing to do to maintain over time. And then it effectively becomes a flat segment and creating the problem all over again. So one of the things we recommend is you got to understand, I mean, there's something called the MITRE attack framework. You got to understand what are the critical entry points into your network? What are the ways in which your devices can be exploited? You got to do something like the exploit analysis for different vulnerabilities, for different devices in your network. And if you understand the ways in which attacker can exploit your network, then you can appropriately add compensating controls. Maybe there is a service that needs to be blocked on your firewall or in your NAC, on your network access control. Maybe there is a, there is a fire, there is a control that you need to place at some point, like a proxy to prevent uh, to make sure all the web browsing goes through the proxy and it is tightly controlled. So there might be certain choke points in your network 
which you have to understand, which are unique to these medical and IoT devices through which an attacker can probably exploit your device. And if you actually find those, what we have discovered is that medical and IoT devices have only certain ways they can be exploited in these networks. And if you understand what those exploit vector parts are, then you can decide where your proxy should be placed or how your proxy should be configured, how your NAC should be configured, what kind of policies or access controls rules should be applied, what kind of next generation firewall rules you should apply, what kind of access control policies are important, where is it important, how can you actually group these devices. And so I think these compensatory controls can then be applied, but just applying the compensatory control without understanding where the exploit vector parts are, is placing the you know, cart before the horse. So our view is segmentation, firewalling, NACs, uh, you know, proxies, all the external controls, access controls that you can apply can be done as compensating controls after you potentially understand the exploit vector parts and knowing where you got, where your attackers can probably exploit the device. Excellent, Mirad. Yes, um, your process should be uh, starting with gathering as much information as you can about the device and the makeup of the device. So you can start with gathering information from the vendor um, you want to request the MDS2 document and the SBOM document. The SBOM um, will be replaced by the CBOM, which is the um, Cybersecurity Bill of Material. And the MDS2 document uh, tells you the, the cybersecurity and, and uh, security controls that are in the device. Um, next, you want to do is um, you want to assess the security posture of the device. You can do this with um, using a vulnerability scanner to perform a safe scan to find out what risk um, you need to be dealing with and all the vulnerabilities that are affecting the device. Um, also, you wanna restrict network communication. This is the most important thing is that um, medical devices don't have much security built into them. So you wanna reduce the attack surface. You wanna reduce the exposure, which helps you reduce the risk in the end. Um, so you want to restrict the traffic to what is needed. Um, if no internet access is needed, remove the internet access. If internet access is needed, then you want to restrict it to what is needed only. Also, what you can do um, is that you always want to keep an eye on safety recalls. Safety recalls tells you what is wrong with the device and uh, if there's any uh, security flaws that needs to be addressed. Uh, the other thing that you need to do is always monitor the traffic of the device on the network. Uh, this tells you if there's any anomalies, if there's an attack on the device, if the device is compromised. And the last thing I want to uh, say is something about physical security. Physical security is important. These devices don't have a password or a pin to get to their configurations and console. So you don't want to leave them in secluded areas of the hospital and leave them for someone who wants to tamper with them. So if they're not in use by the patient, what you want to do is store them in somewhere where um, no one can get to them unless you know, they're needed for patient care. And the last thing uh, is whatever security control you put in place, you have to make sure that the security control stays in place. So you want to perform regular audits on a regular basis. You want to make sure that the security controls that you put in place are still there and it's still being effective and it's still doing the job that you uh, asked them to do. All right, very good, Mitch. So I was going to 
start off by saying that when you need to have a good intake process for your devices, where you do assess and address for risks, including the 2019 revision of the MDS-2, uh, now we look at UL 2900-1 compliance for the development process and making sure that you have the maintenance plan budgeted for to be able to even get patches. A lot of products out there, there's been an issue where you have to have a support plan to be able to get the patches, which we understand because of the whole FDA compliance issue and being sure that the product is supported and that they are able to dedicate support resources to assist you. So you also have to take a look at planning for a device. Do you have the correct operational resources to be able to manage it? Because I look at it in another light. That is, if you're not doing regular device maintenance anyway, then you have a greater concern in your hand. Information security is the least of your concerns. <laughs> so you have to make sure you have a good operational maintenance plan of which security and firmware is part of it because we don't think about this from a security side. However, if you take a look at the work the Emergency Care Research Institute does in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania, excellent resource, by the way, ECRI, ECRI.org, they do some incredible work in publishing product recall advisories, including cybersecurity. And the medical device vendors don't offer firmware updates just for cybersecurity. They also offer them for addressing other features that have been discovered and other bugs that have been discovered that are non-security. So making sure you have a good maintenance schedule in place and making sure someone is checking ECRI to make sure that there's product recalls in the first place and having a good maintenance schedule to address these is paramount. So having good intake processes, doing your risk assessment, making sure you have good maintenance processes and making sure you document and follow up. Those are my recommendations. And I know I'm not talking that much about security, but the realistic truth is, is that if you're not doing that much for basic maintenance of the device, you're not going to have the bandwidth to do security anyway. So better to get the basics in front and have security be part of them. All right. Very good, Mitch. We're going to stick with you on this one. What should you look for when considering a medical device cybersecurity solution? The most important thing is to assess what products are out there, what needs you really need, and to see how it works in a test environment with your devices. I'm not gonna recommend a specific vendor simply because there are a large number of networking and security vendors out there. There's a large number of medical device vendors out there. And for me to do so would be not, would be recommending something that will not meet your needs. So you take a look at what your needs are. You take a look at your risk assessment, find out what you're looking for and also keep your network and your devices into consideration and then assess three or four vendors based upon that using an isolated test network. Make sure that they gather the information that you're looking for that you need to accomplish your tasks and that they meet with your workflow. And when you evaluate these products, don't just look at it from an IS perspective. You're going to have to get clinical engineering or your outsourced clinical engineering firm involved. You're going to have to have information security. You're going to have IT operations, and you're going to have the clinicians involved. Because ultimately, when you put in a security solution like this, it has far-ranging effects on everyone. 
and that is clinical and non-clinical. You have to be prepared to address these across your organization. And I can't say enough about when you pick a solution, you have to work with someone that was willing to partner with you that understands both sides of that business and how to work with the various groups to be able to put something in that meets your needs for operations and security and making sure you put something in that is able to fit with your business. I mean, there's no other way I can put it. Excellent, Mitch. Thank you. Murad? Uh, medical device security solutions currently are not uh, that mature yet and that sophisticated. And that's okay as long as innovation never stops. So the way you should approach uh, choosing a solution is that you want to make sure that the vendor might not be there. And many of the solutions are not there yet, but they are on the right path of getting there. Uh, they're on the right path of providing a complete, a complete solution, a sophisticated solution. So you want to feel that the vendor is innovative enough and the vendor has a vision for the future of how the system is going to be uh, operating, um, how they're going to be staying competitive in the market and uh, help their system mature. Uh, another thing is that integration of the solution with other existing security solutions is very important. Um, we people work together to secure the environment. Why not have in solutions work together to secure the environment? The more integration, the more solutions that work together, the more comprehensive and complete uh, the security solution that you're going to have for medical devices. So working together is key. Also, don't pick a solution solely based on the reviews and what research organizations publish. I've seen some of them being biased. You gotta be careful. As Mitch mentioned, you want to test to drive the solution. You want to do a proof of concept, proof of validation, proof of value. You want to see it. You want to see it for yourself that the solution is doing what the solution is designed to do. The solution is doing what the vendor claims to do. You also want to talk to current customers to see what experience uh, they have with the solution and and how they pick the solution and for what reason. The last thing I want to um, mention is it's important for me to, to know how sophisticated and granular the solution approach for rating uh, risk. You want risk to be rated accurately because rating the risk is going to help you with remediation. You want to start always with the highest risk when you want to remediate. And if the risk is not granular, is not uh, being rated accurately, your remediation effort might not be concentrated in the right area. You want the vendor to rate the risk and take many factors into consideration. For example, um, we all know that Windows XP is uh, out of support. So not because Windows XP is out of support, then you rate the medical device that's running Windows XP with the highest risk. You wanna take into account other factors. What is the device is used for? Um, does the device process or store PHI? How many devices the device uh, communicate with on the network? Is it isolated, is it not? So you get a look at security from many different angles and you wanna have a complete picture and a complete evaluation and you wanna consider everything. Very good, Shankar. 
Yeah, no, thank you. So first of all, uh, I agree with both Mitch and Murad saying you got to test drive. We are the vendor, so we still recommend test drive it, make sure it fits, make sure we, we, we pride ourselves on saying, okay, you know, got to have a solution that works across departments and so on. One of the things I will say, though, from our perspective, we always ask the health system, you know, look beyond inventory. Most health systems say, we want a solution that does medical device security. Let's just get the inventory and then we are done. Right. And that's, they look at it as a medical device security solution that can do some inventory, do some segmentation, do some anomaly. And one of the recommendations we give is that's a much bigger problem. Medical device cybersecurity is much bigger than just getting some inventory and anomaly because you have all these vulnerabilities getting published. You are buying new devices, like Mitch said, right at procurement, you've got to evaluate it. So you've got to look at a solution that actually helps you across the entire life cycle. And especially as these new vulnerabilities come out, and you have all these legacy devices, how do I prioritize? How do I focus? How do I mitigate? When maybe your networking team does not have the capability to segment it, micro-segment, when maybe they don't have the capability to maintain it, then how do you mitigate the risk? How do you focus on a critical few? What workarounds can I implement? You want to work with a solution that can help you really be a medical device security. Uh, it's not a one shot, you got the inventory and then you go back in three months and you get more information. You have, want to have a solution that every month as new things come out is constantly guiding you on what you want to do. And as the industry continues to evolve, the solution evolves with you so that you actually have a solution that you can partner with, not just for the next six months or one year, but for the next three years or five years. That's how you got to look at it. Very good. Uh, Mitch, I want to follow up um, on this concept of test driving versus sort of passively receiving a demo. I don't know if anybody does that, but obviously your advice seems to be, you can't just do that. You can't just get a demo and say, oh, that looks great. You have to test drive it. Tell me more about that. When you take a look at it, you have, again, a plethora of networks, network security, and medical devices out there. And you have to get something that works for the accommodation of your business your workflow, your network, your existing network security, your existing processes, and the medical devices that you have. And you have to take a look at it with an eye on how can I improve the processes in my organization to be better? Because a lot of the issues we have with med device security are we just don't have a lot of bandwidth. And we have to think of ways how we can optimize that bandwidth. We can show that we're providing value to the business and that we're showing that we're reducing risk. And you have to pick the solution out there that enables you to be enables you to reduce risk and do so in a way that doesn't impede workflow at multiple levels. And I bring out clinical because if you impede the way a floor nurse does work or you make it unnecessarily complicated for clinical staff, there will be another solution and you won't be the one picking it. <laughs> well said. So you have to keep all of this in mind and having faced down a number of clinical staff in my time when putting solutions in place, that's the biggest consideration they have. Does this affect the clinical workflow? How does this affect people doing their jobs? Because the worst thing that could happen is you have something that, say, thinks it detects malware, gets a false positive, and it's a medical device that's being used and the patient's on a table. You don't ever want that happening. So you, you really have to think, think in detail and show that it works because, again, 
as one of my old customers, an old nuclear medicine doctor at my old job told me, I'm from Missouri, which means show me. Yeah, it's great stuff, Murata. I, I want you to touch on that a little bit. Um, it seems like good CISOs have a, a hypersensitivity to interfering or messing with clinical workflow. It's the last thing you want to do, right? You want to do everything you can behind the scenes, under the covers, uh, to reduce that risk uh, without messing with the way anybody works. Now, sometimes you may have to, but you only want to do it, I'm guessing, as a total last resort, and it's got to be well thought out, and it can't be just throw it against the wall, see if it sticks, and, oh, it didn't work out, we'll try something else. That's going to get you, I think, as Mitch said, out pretty quickly. What are your thoughts? Yes, I mean, uh, I've heard many times that it takes about a village to secure a medical device. So <laughs> you want to you wanna communicate, you want to coordinate, and you, wanna, you want to collaborate. So it, it takes a lot of people to get on the same page, and it takes a long time to get, um, to get what you need achieved. So you got to have stakeholders. You got to have those from the clinical engineering department, from other IT departments. You need the vendor for any changes you want to make. You need representation from uh, the hospital throughout the hospital, and you have to be slow and steady, and you have to pay attention to people's reaction and people's need and be very, very sensitive. So sometimes you may have to take different approach and, you know, reset and and try different things until, you know, things work. Uh, Most important thing is patient care, and what we're doing is for patient care, so... um, we're trying to protect the patient health as much as the doctor's trying to protect the patient health. So we all have to work together and be very sensitive to each other's need. Um, so it, it's a collaborative effort and, and patient uh, is, is required. So Shankar, what are your thoughts around this topic? Um, you're working with, with folks like Murad and Mitch. You, you want to be embraced by health systems to come in and help them I would imagine you're also sensitive to saying, oh, and we're going to have to do this, and that's going to really change what your doctors and nurses do. You don't want to do that probably unless you have to. You know, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, that's why, I mean, going back to the very concept, right? I mean, one of the things, when we build a solution, I mean, our very first thing was healthcare availability is the most important thing. Uh, while confidentiality, integrity are all important, availability is critical, right? You can't have the medical device go down, not be available. And I mean, that is critical. Patient care has to continue. So in that sense, right, a lot of what we built grounds up was really based on that principle. Uh, and that's where it differs a lot from IT solutions. For example, uh, I mean, going back to mitigation, right? I mean, you have this critical vulnerability. How do you really mitigate it? Then the first question we took a step back and said, is it even a priority for your organization? The same vulnerability, the same device might be critical in some other facility in some other organization, but is it important in your facility, in your organization, in your network, right? So starting from the very basis, uh, starting from the very basic and say, is this important for your organization? If it is important, how critical is it at this point in time? If it is critical, what is the fastest way to mitigate it without causing any network impact, without causing any operational impact? Because even if you change the network configuration, that could have different clinical impacts, like a butterfly effect where you don't foresee it. So what changes can you do without having causing like downstream clinical impacts, downstream network impacts? How can you do that? So this has been a fundamental philosophy of operation. Minimize the impacts, but at the same time, how can you bring down the risk uh, in a way that doesn't really harm the operation? And so a lot of our solution is structured around this very core philosophy. And that's what we advise our health systems. So completely agreed on that. 
Very good. All right. Next question. Um, Murad, let's start with you. What are some of the detrimental security practices that vendor technical support introduces into medical devices? How they're messing you up. <laughs> what are they doing to mess you up? I'm supposed well, to be helping you. Uh, yes, but they do very interesting things that uh, keep <laughs> us on our toes all the time. So, uh, well, I dealt with vendors for about 18 and a half years. So I've seen, I think, a lot. And there's probably <laughs> some more to see. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things is that convenience is the most important thing for them. Uh, for some vendors, the client uh, security is not top priority. So you have to really know what they're doing um, and be a, a monitor what they're doing and uh, work with them closely and don't leave them alone uh, to make changes to your system. So I've seen some vendors use unencrypted, unsecure remote access tools that use no encryption, use weak passwords, old versions of VNC that don't have much security built into them. Um, very interesting thing is when we're talking about passwords is um, some of them use default passwords and weak passwords, and some of them use the same password, and some of them don't even change passwords after uh, employees leave. And some of them use the same password for all the hospitals they uh, support to make it easy for their technical staff to uh, uh, not remember the password they need to get into uh, the different medical uh, devices. Um, one interesting thing when, I mean, I'm talking about passwords is that I found out one time the, um, one of the medical devices had, uh, backdoor accounts, um, to allow support to get in. And, um, when I reached out to the vendor and asked why they have back, uh, backdoor accounts, he told me not to worry about them because they're hidden. I said, if they're hidden, that does not make them secure. I mean, you cannot achieve security through obscurity. And if I was able to discover them, someone else um, can discover them. So uh, technical support, like I mentioned, their focus is to fix something, but their focus is not to fix it in a secure manner. Um, I come across vendors, especially in the lab a few years ago, where they refused to move their server in the data center. I told them the best place for servers is in the data center. They refused. And I asked them a question. I said, if you have a million dollars, where you store them? He said, in the bank. I said, you're sure not under your mattress? He said, no. I said the same thing. You need to move the server into the data center. That's a proper place for it. They wanted the server to be right next to the machines for easy access. And then they play the game is that for performance reasons and, and all this. So um, the best thing I think you, I can give you as an advice is, Monitor what they're doing. Have technical support use a tool that you own to have control and and visibility into what they're doing. And if they refuse to use that tool, then you have to ask for uh, audit trail on a regular basis that shows when they connected, when they disconnected, who from their side connected, for what reason and what they did. So they do a lot of interesting stuff that uh, sometimes you shake your head. And the last thing I want to mention is that I remember a few years ago, um, one vendor came in and upgraded the the application without telling anyone. And the next day I found out they even removed one of the security controls I put in place because the vendor had admin access on the server. 
Well, Mitch, uh, what what that's great stuff, Murad. Mitch, what interesting thing to keep in mind here is that they may do a bunch of stuff that irritates you and uh, things like that, but you can't fire them, can you? Because as we said, these devices are very expensive. You're not going to walk around the hospital floors, put them all in a bag, throw them out, and tell them you're fired. So you have to deal with the situation and get the best out of them you can. What's your advice there? Biggest thing I can say is to get it all in writing because challenges that we have building up Murad said, I don't want to repeat it, but again, get the vendors starting to use remote access, your remote access tools. And there are ones out there that log and audit everything they do. And in addition to that, have two factor authentication because again, you we're in a situation now where any access to a network that's not two-factor is a significant security risk in itself so you make sure you have tools in place that give them that two-factor authentication so that they can get in and log everything that they do second thing no default passwords and no hidden accounts and the reason I say those two is because look what happened last week with that ca- that company selling 150,000 security cameras. You think Elon Musk, who is making incredibly competitive products and everyone out there wants to see what he's doing, you think he likes the fact that a bunch of his security cameras were viewable on the internet by anyone with a hidden account and password? No, no one does. So think about that. Think if it's a patient out there and would you want that patient's information compromised because somebody googled your password so that's how you have to approach it and also keep pushing them for federation this is something that's new there's only some devices that do it the number will increase as the standards get finalized for medical device security to where you're not going to have default usernames and passwords on the device where if someone wants to authenticate to their device, it's either going to be federated or it's going to be through your directory services, but no default passwords and make sure that the remote access is secured and has two-factor authentication because, again, we're in a situation now with all the different vulnerabilities out there that it is no longer a question of convenience convenience is out the window. It is the question of, are you going to do something that is going to introduce risk to our network and our ability to take care of patients? And if the answer is that you introduce risk in how you try and service or maintain a device, then we're going to have to have a discussion about how we're going to put you on a path to make sure that you're doing so because not doing so is not living our values. Very good, Shankar. Yeah, no, I think um, Murad and Mitch have already covered a lot of great points. One additional thing I would say outside of password is we've seen a lot of vendors, uh, they they say they are using a secure way to access the device, but the security ends at the gateway of the health system. And within the health system, it's all unsecured. Like it's a FTP, it's a telnet, it's an RDP, and it's all running in clear. And it's very easily hackable for an attacker or anyone just sniffing. You get, you get to know everything there is to know about what's happening on the network. And it's uh, it's also using a very legacy version. Sometimes you have seen an SMB V1 being turned on on a device simply because the manufacturer wants to pull something and they use, they're turning it for network file share. 
And they might say it's secure, but it's secure only till the boundary, and then you have SMB v1 running through the entire network. So I think that these kind of issues also create other kinds of problems in the network. Um, and so uh, we say, you know, these are things like M M Mitch mentioned, you've got to get it in writing. But as importantly, we have seen health systems which have got it in writing, but then the manufacturer is saying, you know, who's, who's monitoring all of this anyway? And they're still continuing to access, they're still continuing to get information, and the health system doesn't even know. So while so there are these kind of insecure practices, so while you get it in writing, I agree with Mitch, you also continue to monitor what these guys are doing. And then you have to go back and actually close the loop with the vendor to make sure this is happening in the environment as well. Very good. We have one audience question uh, for Murad. Can you tell us more about the CBOM? I have not heard of this term before. How does it differ from SBOM? Yes. So the CBOM, the Cybersecurity Bill of Material, is what's going to replace the Software Bill of Material. They both look similar. They both list all the different software components, but FDA is shifting the focus on cybersecurity, and that's why they're um, requiring manufacturers to um, work on uh, a cyber bill of material. This is uh, something new about two years ago, the FDA released. Um, the C-bomb is going to replace uh, the S-bomb. All right, very good. Uh, we're gonna I, I go can, to, go ahead, Mitch, go ahead. I can actually add something on to that. It's really funny because we, I have two team members working on the SBOM with FDA and the NTIA. So Department of Commerce is doing a lot of work on it. So SBOM is going to continue on and that work that is CBOM is gonna be part of the overall SBOM work that Alan Friedman is doing as part of all that work that is being done by NTIA and FDA and will eventually be adopted by NIST. All right, very good. Shankar, uh, we're going to do our little Ask a Co-Panelist feature. Do you have a question for either or both of your co-panelists? Uh, so one of the questions I have, uh, you know, for both Murad and Mitch, Murad, you touched upon it, touched upon it, but, you know, a lot of health systems nowadays are saying, okay, you know, we are looking at the connected device problem, which is 25% of our network. But there's a lot of devices in the inventory that you're going to connect, right? There's probably another, today, if you have 20, 25% connected devices, you're going to have another 50% coming onto the network, let's say, in the next three years. So there is a bigger problem with devices coming on. So how do you assess the risk? You talk a little, spoke a little bit about UL certification, but how do you assess the risk? How do you actually plan for remediation before the device comes onto the network? How do you actually decide, decide what kind of configurations you should apply on the device in the network? Because if you actually solve it before it connects, I mean, if you have some controls before it connects, then you can get ahead of the cybersecurity problem. Otherwise, this is going to be a nightmare. So if you can guys uh, touch upon it, Murad, maybe you can start off from your side and then Mitch, maybe add a couple more thoughts on this. That'll be great. Sure. Um, before you add any device to the network, you need to know the, about the security posture of that device and, and what you um, need to do to, to secure that device and how the device is going to be um, used. So whenever there's a new solution that needs to be implemented, I always ask for uh, a network communication and a data flow diagram. I want to know how the, how the device is going to connect to the network and what communication uh, protocols is it going to be using and how the data is going to be exchanged. So you, you got to look at the, the full picture is the security of the device by itself and the security of the device when it interacts with other uh, devices because the security of the device becomes as secure as the devices it communicates with. 
Um, so you want to collect as much information about that device as you can before um, you connect that device to the network. And always, once the device is connected to the network, you always want to monitor what the device is doing. Security is not a goal. It's a process. Um, so everything has to continue, and we have to have constant visibility into uh, every device that we put on the network. And if I, before Mitch, you answer that, yeah. if I can add one more level to it, are you guys including this when you actually procure a device? Is this becoming one of your requirements in your health system when you procure the device, even if they're two similar devices? So if you can add that and add that color as well when you respond, Mitch, that'd be great. So absolutely. I assume a device will always be connected to the network. So a couple of years ago, I saw the biohacking village at DEF CON and got a look at the, some of the work the University of Nebraska was doing in their research. And it showed all the medical devices that were connected around the patient's bed. It was a lot of devices. Anyone says that it is not going to be connected to a network, assume it's going to be connected. <laughs> and there are many reasons why it's going to be connected. So you also have to take a look at what happens when the device doesn't function correctly. So I always think of the failure mode and effects analysis as something you really need to think of in addition to your due diligence as to how you take a look at the device and find out what happens when it fails. So understanding how it functions and under adverse conditions is also critically important. Um, All right. Thank you. Go ahead, Shankar. Any, is it, you good? No, okay. thank you. Thank you for well, very good. Listen, we're about uh, out of time today. What a wonderful discussion, a lot of great information. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording is ready. To, if you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to view upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our panel very much, Mitch Parker, Murad Dekadek, and Shankar Somasundaram. And I want to thank our sponsor, Assimile, for making this event possible. I think uh, we got a lot of good information out there. I want to thank you for attending. Uh, with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.